All right, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 16 this morning. If you've got your Bibles or your iPads, open up. I think we have 10 iPads in the room today, so that's pretty awesome. I get to geek out a little there, you know, right? That's good stuff. Uh, for those of you with an electronic device, if you're reading along today, uh, just to let you know, if you go to stuartheights.org slash sundayschool, there's a link that will take you to both the student handout in a PDF format, so you can take notes on that if you have a PDF reader, or you can go to the teacher notes, which is what I'm actually doing this morning. I, I, all of my notes are on the website, and I just pull them straight off the website. So um, another resource there. So you can, you can get to see what I skip and what I ad lib if you're into that sort of thing. So it's up to you. But we're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, big thanks to uh, Tim Archer last week for filling in. Most of you guys know that uh, I've been asked to lead Easter at Coolidge this year, and that has been a pretty substantial amount of my time. Uh, so I appreciate Tim stepping in and doing that. The, uh, so last week was about King Saul and his rise to power. Uh, in the interim, between last week's passage and this week's passage, Saul has basically taken a nosedive. He has done several acts that just did not pan out well. Um, anybody that was a follower of Yahweh could look at his life and go, yeah, you, you are not walking the right path. So with that as the background to today's story, we're in 1 Samuel 16. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, which is probably something none of us have ever been told, fill your horn with oil and go, right? Um, we'll get to that in just a second. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, Jesse's a name we should be familiar with. When Lori taught us the story of Ruth back in January, Jesse, we found out, was the What? He was the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. So that's how that story fits into the Bible. So that's your first blank if you're filling in blanks today. <clears throat> God continues to speak and he says, For I have provided myself a king among his sons, which I think is one of the coolest little things that God does. Is he takes these people that are not part of the group, right? Because Ruth was not a Jew, right? And this is a problem. This is a problem because... Now we've got this line that the king of Israel and the future Messiah himself is going to come through, and it's polluted with an outsider. Well, that's what God does for like the past 6,000 years. He has taken us outsiders, and he has grafted us into his family and made us a part of his family. And that's the beautiful story of redemption that God does. So to me, this is a big deal. I don't want to miss over that fact. And, and if you think about it, Look at Samuel's perspective on this. You know, God moved in Samuel's life so that Samuel anointed Saul king, right? This is part of the, the passage, the text that we skipped. Samuel anointed Saul king, and now God is telling Samuel to go to someone else that he's never met and tell them that they're going to be the new, the new king. So from Samuel's perspective, it's almost a well, I feel a bit of personal failure associated here because the guy that I was involved with rising up, raising up is not the guy, right? And I don't know if you've ever been a part of helping someone grow or mature, uh, discipling someone, and then seeing things fall apart years later. And you kind of feel this, well, I, I invested my life in this, right? I, and it didn't work out. So Samuel's emotional state here has kind of got to be I think a little bit fragile. So verse 2, Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. <clears throat> so right away we see an insight into Saul's perspective on life, which is 
hothead, rash reaction, uh, overblown, not the guy that takes bad news positively, okay? So continuing in verse 2, 1 Samuel 16, verse 2. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you. Just fill your horn with oil and take a heifer. So, you know, insert jokes here. There you go. Let's get the la- Okay, nervous laughter's gone. The word ass does not show up in today's story. It would make it even more uncomfortable, but it doesn't, so that's great. <clears throat> I have come to sacrifice to the... Bill- Barry's going to be so annoyed he missed today because I got to say ass in Sunday school. He loves it when I give him a text of scripture and it's got the word ass in it. He'll actually read it from the King James just so he can say the word ass. It's great. <laughs> Verse 3, then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do, and you shall anoint for me the one that I name for you. So anointing is basically a process where you take oil, you put it on someone's, this is not WD-40, kind of, it's like, it's, I said the wrong stuff, didn't I? It's not 10W-40. Dang it, I knew I was going to mess it up. I knew I was going to mess it up. I know nothing about mechanics. It's awful. It's really awful. So it's not like motor oil. This is uh, more of a cooking oil type stuff, so it's clear, it would rub off easily. You put it on their forehead, and it's basically a ceremony, it's your next blank, to visibly pick a person for a job. It's, I'm setting you apart visibly among everybody else for a particular job. So verse 4, so Samuel did what the Lord said, amen, and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, saying, do you come peaceably? Because every once in a while, when the man of God shows up at a town, good things did not follow. So they're kind of feeling him out here. Is this going to be a good visit or not? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, or set apart, and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated, or set apart, Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was, when they came, that Samuel looked at Eliab, this is Jesse's oldest, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, and and as far as we know, Samuel's the only one that heard this. Okay? He said, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So once again, we see this principle in the Old Testament of the guy that we think is going to get picked, God doesn't pick him, right? which is awesome. Because how many of you uh, got picked first on the playground growing up? How many of you were that kid? Come on, it's okay. It's okay. Lori was that kid. That kid. Anybody else? I got one more in the back. That was that. I was that kid in basketball and in no other sport whatsoever. Because who wants me in football or anything else? It's just not going to work. Um, so for the rest of us, we're the not got picked first. So we can associate with David here. Okay. So verse eight. So Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. This is Jesse's second oldest, and he said, "Neither has the Lord chosen this one." Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. Um, this is the ancient uh, predecessor of the Shamwow guy, in case you're wondering there. Uh, wah, wah, wah. Oh, no. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. Now, this is David's perspective. The very first thing... Samuel shows up. He invites them all to what? To come to the sacrifice. David doesn't even get invited to go to the sacrifice. That's how much of an afterthought he is. I mean, this is... If I'm David, I'm hurt, right? And maybe this was normal. There's no implication in the text that David felt offended 
or outcast. This might have been just everyday stuff for them, that he just wasn't really part of the family. So there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which literally means like red hair. And it was highly associated in the Old Testament with pale skin. Okay? He was ruddy, with bright eyes, and he was good-looking. Now, he wasn't the best-looking guy in Israel. Who was the best-looking guy in Israel? Saul was the best-looking guy. He was the tallest and the best-looking. His name actually means desired, which I think is kind of funny because God gave Israel exactly what they desired when they wanted a king. And they got what they wanted, and, but they didn't like the long-term outcome. So be, be careful about our desires. They don't always work out well. There's a whole other story there. So he's a bright-eyed and good-looking, and the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, what did Samuel say when he anointed David? Did, you, did we miss that in the text? Did I just skip over that part of the text? We have no idea. I, I don't know. I don't have any definitive proof that Samuel said you will be king of Israel one day. Or if he was just like, okay, we're done, thanks. He anointed his head. We don't have any record that he actually said. I don't know for sure that David knew the significance of this day. He just knew that he was different in front of all of his other brothers. Now, we've experienced Old Testament stories so far where the bro- one younger brother was different and decided to speak out very loudly about it, and it got him in a lot of trouble. Anybody remember? Joseph, yes, the poster child for dysfunctional families, right? I mean, it's just, it was awful. So he speaks out, and his brothers throw him in a pit and leave him there to die, and then they sell him off. And, I mean, it's just this awful, awful story. David, none of this. So we, I can think through the scriptures by the lack of contact, the, the lack of uh, discussion around this, that David kept his mouth shut. I think he had a little wisdom. We're going to see the Bible call him wise as we go through this story. Now, chronologically speaking, it was at least, here's your blank, it was at least 20 plus years later before David actually became king. Somewhere between 10 and 15. Somewhere between 10 and 15. We don't know exactly, but that's kind of the ballpark. So 20 years. Imagine that. 20? What were you doing 20 years ago? Uh, Ooh, I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) Right? How many of you don't want to talk about what you were doing 20 years ago, right? Praise Jesus, it's under the blood, right? Um, yeah, so 20 years, he's kind of wondering, hanging out, I don't know, what was that day with Samuel about? I, I kind of think he didn't know what was going on. The text doesn't give us confirmation to that. Um, but as far as we know, this was just a private ceremony with uh, Jesse and his family, and that's where it stayed. So, verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord, so we, this is shift in scenes. If we were in a play, this would be shift in scenes. Verse 14, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing or an evil or a bad spirit from the Lord troubled him. How many of you that bothers just a little bit? An evil, bad spirit from the Lord? We'll keep reading, see if it clears up. Verse 15, And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. So he has some observant spirit, uh, servants here. Verse 16, let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on a harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand. And when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, that you shall be well. Are we clearing this up at all? You're like, I don't think we are. Okay, let's keep going. Let's see if we can figure it out. 
Verse 17, So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. The Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So, Saul, so David came to Saul and stood before him. And Saul loved David greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Saul said to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the distressing spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand, that Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So that cleared it up, right? All right, so there's a little uh, common, a note from a commentary in your handout. What does that say? It's the green text. Green text is commentary. Purple text is questions. Black text are my information. Red text is the text. In case you've not figured out my color coding system yet. So. I'm a visual learner, so colors mean something to me. So what does that green text say? Yeah, and that's one of the best Bible commentators that I've ever found. Um, and that's the Bible commentator's way of going, we have no clue what this is talking about, right? There are times where God does things that appear to us to be evil or mean. Is God evil and mean? No. So if we go into the Bible with the assumption, with the knowledge that God is right and just and pure and holy and all that he does, we can set aside false um, interpretations like that, right? So you've got to be careful about going into the Scripture with a completely open mind, no, you don't need to go into the Scripture completely open mind. You need to go into the Scripture with a closed mind that God is completely just and right and holy and good and all that he does. When you go into it with that, you get a much better uh, exegesis from the Scriptures. Amen? All right, so it's a personal joke. Y'all will figure it out later. Um, so what does this distressing spirit mean? With guilt? Okay. We got a guilt. Anybody else? So I want to question you before you answer. Does the Bible give us clear direction? No. How many of you have read uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? This guy that wrote the Sherlock Holmes books. Uh, Sherlock Holmes had this quote that he would constantly say. He would ask Watson. Watson was his... Uh, he really wasn't stupid. If you look at, go back and look at Watson, he was really kind of intelligent. But he just wasn't on the level of intelligence that Sherlock Holmes was. And Holmes was constantly telling Watson, stop guessing. Guessing is totally detrimental to your facilities. If you look at the facts and derive facts from the facts, you will get better at what we're doing here, solving problems and questions and cases. What we want to do, because we're Americans, we want to have the answer for every little thing. The answer is not here. Okay? So there will be portions of Scripture that I stand up and talk to you about, and we ha will have ideas about, but I will not be able to definitively say this is the answer. So this goes back to the closed fist, open hand, right? You guys remember this? In the closed fist, we have the authority of Scripture, the bodily resurrection, the coming of Christ, the deity of Christ, the exchange of Christ. The open hand is mostly everything else, okay? This is like two open hands. I got no clue. I have really no clue. 
God is doing what God needs to do right here to bring Saul to a place where he will act in a way so that David can then be promoted to be king at the appropriate time. More than that, I have no clue. So does that help a little bit? So my answer was, I don't know. I'm right there with um, the commentator. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, here we go. Now the Philistines enter ominous music here. Okay? These are the baddest of the bad guys. Uh, of, of this era, gathered their armies together to battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, which means they're in our territory. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up ba- in battle in array against the Philistines. Then the Philistines stood up on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. Now, Trish, this is not the Swiss Alps in Sweden, right? So I just I don't want to get that confused. Um, how many of you know the Swiss Alps are not in Sweden? You know that? How many of you got the blue right past? No problem there at all. That was awesome. I'm totally going to edit this out of the podcast. Don't worry about it at all. Um, so basically what's happening here is the Philistines are on one mountain. The Israelites are on another mountain. There's a valley in between, Okay. This has to come back to me today, all right? I'm going to pass this around. That is a rock from the valley in between. This is the valley where David killed Goliath, okay? It's actually, you've got something where David killed Goliath. I thought that was kind of cool. That's kind of neat. So, Philistines, Israelites, and the basic premise is that Goliath is a giant, right? We know the story. I'm not going to go into too much detail on the story, but uh, Goliath's somewhere around nine and a half or ten feet tall. Which to us nowadays, we go, oh, that's hard to believe. Well, we have it documented, pictures of the guy. You can go to Wikipedia of an 8-foot, 11-inch man that lived about 100 years ago. So Goliath's maybe a half a foot to a foot taller than that. I think there's plenty of margin in uh, the variety of people that God creates for that much wiggle room on either side. Okay, It's just completely, completely doable. So, verse 4, and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines. This word champion literally means the space between two places. So, a champion, what does a champion do? A champion inserts himself or herself into the space between two places to mediate on behalf of one and to defeat the armies of the other. Who does this sound like? Sunday school answer of the day is Jesus, yes. Jesus is our champion. So I think it's kind of funny that here, Goliath is a type of Jesus. Don't throw things at me, those of it's you that are not dispensationalists. So that's heretical in some camps, but that's okay. So a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. You do the math, he's about nine and a half or ten feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. You can go to Google and type in how much does 5,000 shekels of bronze weigh, and Google will go, I have no clue. No, it will not, actually. Google will tell you it weighs about 125 pounds. So the dude has 125 pounds, and that was just his coat, his, the, the chain mail that was on him. Okay. So if you put 125 pounds of chain mail on me, you're going to need to help me off the floor, 
you're going to need to get it off of me and then do CPR because you've probably crushed my poor little out of shape lungs, right? Zeke's going, yeah, I probably, yeah, it's probably good. It'd be good to be sitting right here, right? Okay, so that's just what he's wearing. And, verse 6, he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed, weighed 600 shekels, about 15 pounds. And a shield bearer went before him. So he's wearing so much armor that he couldn't actually carry his own shield. So in all these stories that you see of these murals of the picture of David and Goliath, you see Goliath out there, and he's almost always holding a shield. Heresy! It's not the way it worked. Okay? This actually was not a fair fight because when David got out there, it was two on one. This is the way this really was. This was not a fair fight to begin with. So verse 8, So he stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel, and he said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose for a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And this was very common in this era. Uh, if you think about it, it was a smarter way to do war because only one guy dies as opposed to most of the country. Okay? So at the end of the battle, what you have is one group of people pays a lot more taxes. That's the result. As opposed to one group of people has uh, no men left. This is a smarter way to do war. If you win. That's the big if. So... Verse 10, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And I think Saul, uh, Goliath was more of a hero than Saul was because Goliath was the champion that stepped into the middle and stood up for his people. And who did we talk about was the tallest man in Israel? Saul. So who do you think everybody's looking to to resolve this issue? I hope they were looking to Saul. And what does Saul do? Two big giant steps back. Oh, that was funny, wasn't it? That was good. I didn't think about that. Um, so our eminent theologian in the room, Justin Harness, sent me some notes on this. He said, Saul was a passive leader watching from the sidelines. And many of you have probably worked for someone who was a passive leader. You kind of had to wait on them to step up and wait on them to do something, and they wouldn't engage, and they wouldn't proactively take. And it's just the most hair-pulling thing you can experience because you just want somebody to stand up and lead. It's that scene from Braveheart where Mel Gibson's character goes up to Robert the Bruce and he goes, if he would just lead them. An awful accent, I know. It's okay. <laughs> I tried, okay? I watched the movie like three times this weekend. I just couldn't get the accent down. So, so he's this passive leader watching from the sidelines. Verse 12, David enters the picture, and we see this story where David goes and he, he brings his brothers who are fighting on the front lines food and uh, reinforcements and whatnot, and Verse 16, it talks about Goliath does this for 40 days. They wake up, Goliath gets up, and he gives his speech, and no one shows up. And they turn around and they go. So here's an educational fact for you. In three weeks, it takes three weeks to form a new habit. It takes three more weeks to get comfortable with it. 40 days is about six weeks. In six weeks, the Israelites were comfortable with the fact that nobody was going to stand up. Okay? So this is how this works, practically speaking. How many of you brush your teeth with your right hand? Raise your hands. That's funny. Several of you raised your left hand to say that you brush your teeth with your right hand. That, was, that totally threw me, Albert. That totally threw me. Okay, just so you know. My brain just went... So how many of you brush your teeth with your left hand? We've got two. Okay, that's awesome. Three. All right, we've got three. If you three wanted to be right, 
like the rest of us are right, okay? And start brushing your teeth with your right hand. Guess what's going to happen the first day? Uh, and, and you're going to have like toothpaste in your ear. I mean, it's going to be all over the place. It's awful. It will take you six weeks of doing it every single day to get comfortable doing it with the other hand, okay? So Israel is comfortable listening to this. I mean, they like it, but it's the routine now. This is the new normal. Goliath has redefined normal for Israel at this point. So Jesse then tells David, go and bring this food to your brothers. So verse 20. So David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper. Now this, to me, is a key critical component of David and his character. Because David was responsible for these little sheep, right? I don't know how many they had, but he was responsible for the sheep. And when he left, he made sure somebody was doing his job. This is critical. Because if he's going to be king, he's going to have to know how to orchestrate gobs of things going on and make sure that people are responsible for the areas that they're doing. Does this make sense? Okay. So he was faithful to that which he was entrusted with. That's your blank. He was faithful. So verse 20, he took the things with, and went with as Jesse had commanded him. He comes to the army. He hears all these things. They rehearse this to him. Uh, verse 26, David spoke to the men who were standing by him and said, What shall be done for the man who kills uh, this Philistine and takes away the reproach for Israel? For who? Listen to his brash little speech. For who is this uncircumcised? I can see his head just wiggling back and forth. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Right? Because David has not heard this speech for 40 days. He is not acclimated to this yet. And the people answered him in this manner and said, So it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when, where he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep? Right? He's hurling little insults at his little brother. In the wilderness, I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And it's like, Argh! he just vomits this negativity all over him, right? And last week, you guys heard, uh, and the week before, about Nehemiah, right? We're building the wall of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah had a couple folks that were opposing him every step of the way, Sanballat and Tobias. Every step of the way, Sanballat and Tobias were going, you can't do it. It's not going to work. You can't do it. It's not going to work. You can't do it. It's not going to work. And every once in a while, when I have somebody that's coming up to me and goes, you can't do that. It's not going to work. There is no way you can stuff 100,000 eggs in one week. No way. It won't work. If I had a nickel for every person that came up to me and said, you can't stuff 100,000 eggs, it won't work. It won't work. It's too much. It's too big. We could have paid for most of the eggs. I'm telling you. Okay. So instead of just Sanballat's and Tobias's, now we have Sanballat, Tobias's, and Eliab's. Okay? They will show up when you're doing a great work every single time. And it will hit you at the most inopportune time. When you're about to go encourage somebody to do the work, Sanballat cuts you off and it's like, what was this? And now it's, uh, I don't have time to discuss this with you. God's going to do this, right? This is going to be okay. And you, you try to encourage somebody and your mind's over here and it's just, and it will get you off track. Cannot tell you how many times. Appreciate your prayers that, for me as we go through this process uh, to not get discouraged with the sin ballots and the Tobiases because I want to go do what Nehemiah did and smack them in the head. <laughs> but we're under grace now and we can't do that. So, All right, so verse 29. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause or is God's name not on the line here? Does nobody else care? 
Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing, and the people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David were spoken were heard, they reported them to Saul, and Saul sent for David. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now there is something completely different about saying somebody should go and take care of that. And I will go and take care of that. Right? Because all of us know that, that they should fix that. Right? They should go and do that. And we've talked about our management at work. Right? Have you ever used the word they for your the generic version of your management at work? They should do that. I don't know who this they are, but they are guilty of so much stuff. Let me tell you. It's unbelievable. As opposed to, you know what? I will go take care of that. And David looks at the biggest problem facing Israel and goes, yep, I'll go take care of that. Because David's God was bigger than the Philistines' Goliath. And that's a real big deal. That's a real big deal. So Saul and David have this conversation, and, um, and Saul gives him his armor, which I think is the dumbest move Saul makes in the whole story. Because Saul is the tallest guy in Israel. And David's a kid. He's probably a teenager. And how does he think? that his armor is going to fit David, right? It'd be like Michael Ray walking in here and saying, I'm going to throw you under the bus, Albert, I'm sorry, and saying, Albert, here's my clothes for the day. It's, I'm sure it's going to work well for you. It's like, no, it's not going to work well. It's not going to work well at all. It's awful. It's not going to fit. It's just a, it's a dumb move. I don't understand why he did it, but it was a dumb move. So, verse 40. So David took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in a shepherd's bag, and a pouch which he had, and his sling which was in his hand. So what did God use? He used what was in his hand already. Because we think, if I'm going up against a Goliath, that I need other stuff. God just wants us to use what he's already given us and we're comfortable with. This is incredible incredibly big point to see all throughout the Old Testament. And he drew near to the Philistine. So what is David at this point? David is stepping into the space between. So David is now a David is now a champion. Verse 41, so the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. See, it's still not a fair fight. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? He may have a different translation than dog. You probably don't, because the Hebrew word is uh, kaleb, uh, which literally means dog. But when you're insulting people, it means you're a homosexual male prostitute. And inserting homosexual male prostitute right here really makes it hard to teach this story to kids. So... So we just kind of theologically stick with dog, right? Because that's just a little easier to message, I think. So, okay. This is how translations get done, guys, I'm telling you. Um, And the Philistine cursed David. And the Philistine said, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, and this is just too good not not to read, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you and will take your head from you. Now, David is a bit brash here because what does David armed with? A sling. Does a sling take your head? But a sword will. And Goliath's got one of those. <laughs> this, is, this is brass. 
Okay? And I will give this day the, camp, the carcasses of the camp of Israel to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the field that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly, he keeps going, he's not out of breath. Then all this shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. If you want to write in the margin Psalm 20, I've got to think that when David was writing Psalm 20, he was thinking back to this day. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, uh, to meet David, that David hurried and ran to meet the Philistine. Think about this. He's a kid, and he's running full speed at the Philistine. This is crazy behavior. It's absolutely crazy behavior. Our eminent theologian, Justin, says he took a knife to a gunfight and did it willingly. Right? You like the eminent theologian title? I like the eminent theologian. Yeah. If you can spell eminent, I'll give you a dollar right now. Can't do it, can you? L-E-G-G-O, right? There you go. Um, so David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. So the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. Now, what do you think the dude holding the shield is thinking right now? Yeah, that's what I'd be doing. <laughs> Drop that shield and head back to uh, Philistia. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath, which I think was probably a Herculean effort in and among itself, and killed him and cut off his head with it. Boom! And we're not done. And the Philistines went crazy. The Israelites kicked their butts. Verse 55 Saul asks another dumb question and says, Who is this kid? I would think you'd want to know who this kid was since you've already spent time with him in the palace. Right? I think Saul's almost kind of got some mental issues going on at this point. His chief of uh, his army didn't know. Verse 57, Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. David has a trophy, and we ain't letting go of it. Now, where does it say David takes the head of the Philistine? What city? Jerusalem. Israel didn't occupy Jerusalem at this time. They wouldn't occupy Jerusalem for 20 more years. David, more than likely, pickled the head of Goliath and kept it as a trophy. And when they invaded Jerusalem 20 years later, he took it and he mounted it as proof that this is what God can do. Because we need reminders. Now, this is a gruesome one, right? You're like, holy cow, what in the world? This is like Pulp Fiction kind of stuff. Yes, it is. <laughs> he kept it. He kept it. This is what God can do. It's amazing stuff. So, verse chapter 18 talks about David and their uh, coming together and becoming friends with Jonathan. And Saul goes crazy. Saul goes absolutely crazy in, verse, in chapter 18. He throws a spear at David twice. Now, a spear was a symbol of authority at this time. And throwing your spear, David was pretty nimble. He got out of the way the first time. How many of us would have stuck around for the second time? I'm, you're crazy. I'm leaving, right? This, you're a crazy leader. I'm getting out of here. That's not what David did. And he was never once disrespectful to Saul in his capacity as king. It's amazing to me, the maturity and the wisdom that this kid showed. So, what's the point? Well, God knows what he's doing when he picks people, right? 
Um, and when God gives you opportunities, thank you, Esther, for more responsibilities of a higher status, don't think yourself as more important than others. Because David got promoted pretty quick here. He got promoted pretty quick. Um, he got promoted right after he killed Goliath. He may have still been a teenager, and he's basically over the army, or a big chunk of the army. It's a lot of stuff. And then number three, giant killing is contagious. It really is. Because in, first, in 2 Samuel 21, at the end of that chapter, you know, most people say, well, why did David pick up five stones? They want to know, what about the five stones? The point of the story is not why he picked up five stones. The point of the story is that God killed a giant with a stone. Right? But if you want to know why he picked up five stones, you can go to 2 Samuel 21 and do some hermeneutical uh, gymnastics and come up with Goliath had four brothers. Guess what happened to him in 2 Samuel 21? <laughs> they all got killed. You know why? Because giant killing is contagious. Because when you see somebody do something impossible, you think, you know what? I can do that too. It's like the four-minute mile. When somebody broke the four-minute mile, people started shattering the four-minute mile. It was ridiculous how many people could do it. But until one guy did it, everybody said it was impossible. You can't kill a giant. It's impossible. But giant killing is contagious. So what do I do with that? Well, get behind leaders and help them do the work. Number two, stay humble and know that God is empowering. And number three, let God use you to kill some giants. Because we still got giants. And they need to die. And that's the way this works. Okay? The same God that let David kill this giant with this stone, which just makes me laugh hysterically, you know, is the same God we still serve today. It's fantastic stuff.